Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. I have to tell you that this first Sunday after Pentecost is one of my favorite Sundays to preach in the entire year. And it's not just today because at some point during the service I'm going to get to wear a hockey jersey and worship. That's not why this is one of my favorite Sundays, though that certainly will make this a memorable one. I've often said one of the reasons I love this Sunday is because it is, if you take my meaning, it is the perhaps the only Sunday that we set aside for a theological idea. Now, of course, when we talk about Jesus being born or we talk about the cross, we talk about resurrection or all of those things, certainly there is theology as part of it. But what's fundamental about those times is we tell a story, right? At Christmas time, we tell the story, you know, Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem, they have a baby. And then we ask, what does that mean? And that's when we get to theology. But this is the one Sunday where we're like, actually, let's start with this theological idea, this idea of the Trinity. We are going to celebrate this thing that is hinted at in Scripture, but there is no story. In fact, the word Trinity never shows up in the Bible. And so some of you might say, well, if, you're not, if we're not telling us, why, why do we have to do theology? Some of you are like, are you serious? Like, this is going to be the world's most boring sermon. Maybe it is. I'm hoping not. But here's the thing, friends. If we're serious about following Jesus, if we're serious about being a disciple, the minute that you say, what does this mean? You have entered the world of theology. The minute you say, why does this matter? The minute you say, I wonder what I'm supposed to get out of this. Any of those questions. The minute you do that, you, have, you are now a theologian. Like it or not. You have entered the theological world. Because theology is simply the making of meaning from our stories and our experiences. We want to try to make some sense of God based on, what, based on the stories we've received, whether they be in Scripture or our local community or the world. And we want to make sense of God from what you and I have experienced. It is our attempt, in other words, to make sense of the data that is all around us. What does my life mean? Why does the story of history matter? Why do the scriptures matter? Because even the scriptures are theology. None, repeat, none of the scriptural authors were simply repeating a story. Every one of them said, here is what I want you to believe. Here is how I want you to think about this. They were trying to take us somewhere. They wanted to teach us theology. And theology is taking the data of God and the data of the world and making life beautiful and meaningful and just life. And some of you say, well, theology has been a problem for the church. Yeah, it has. The fact that we sit in a church that has a denominational label on it, in it regardless of what denomination you're part of, means that at some point the theology has become a problem. And so some of us would want to jettison it entirely and be like, oh, we get into more arguments than we do agreements, so I'm out on this. Even if theology is important, it scares me. But I read this week from a great mystic, a great modern mystic who's recently passed away. You might have heard of him. His name is Thomas Merton. He was a monk down in Kentucky. 
you can go and see his, the cell where he lived. You can go see it today. I'd like to go and see Thomas Merton's place. But Merton wrote these words. He was, ta- he was speaking to people who were concerned about theology. And he says, the truth is that the saints, and by saints he doesn't mean just the people with the halos, he means you and me as well. The saints, the church, arrived at the deepest and most vital and also the most individual and personal knowledge of God precisely because of the church's teaching. There's a movement in our world that says we actually have a better experience of God if we ditch our theology, if we stop it with definitions and thoughts and trying to figure all this out. Merton actually argues the opposite. A man whose life was invested in nothing but prayer and sharing the good news of Jesus. He argues the opposite. He says that good theology, which is opposed to bad theology, bad theology will always box us in. But good theology doesn't box in the mystical. It doesn't box in the divine. Rather, it cracks it open. Because I think what Merton would say to us is he's like, look, just because you have an idea of God doesn't make it a good one. There's plenty of horrible ideas about God and, what, and how God is working in the world. Things that I don't believe for a second. Just because you say God, you're doing theology. That doesn't always mean we do good theology. Merton says the church's job is to explore ideas, to think, to ask new questions, to wonder. And when we do that, theology cracks open the mystical and the contemplative so that we might have an authentic experience of the divine. Theology is a roadmap to help us get there through 2,000 years of experience. The church helps us say, look, these things are going to take you all, you're going to end up in a ditch over here. That's not where you want to go. Good theology says, here are the paths that are good and true. Pulling on the psalmist, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So is good theology. It is a path for us to follow. Now, of course, human language is never going to be sufficient to describe God. That's not what any theologian has ever set out to do. Let me tell you exactly who God is in this box. No. But theologians will also tell us That while we can't box God in, God has revealed God's self to us. God has said, here's what I want you to know about me. And when God does that, we can say some things with certainty. And when we say those things, then we can follow in those ways and we can think in new ways and ultimately we can live in new ways. And so we have this theological idea, Trinity, in the classical language of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. That is the doctrine. They're not three expressions of God or three modes of God or three forms of God. It's not like first there was the Father, then there was the Son, then there was the Holy Spirit. It's not like, you know, it's not, it's not exactly like, you know, steam and ice and water, you know, kind of the same thing in three different forms. No, 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 no. What we have classically said, what the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church have said, is that these are three distinct and different persons. And that word matters. We describe God in persons. But they are all eternal and all one. And if you're like, how in the world can that be? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. My brain will not do that. It does not have the pathways to comprehend that because it is an eternal concept. It is not a finite one. But one might say that this idea of three persons, one God, we might say that apart from the cross and resurrection, this is our single most important theological concept. And the proper question then to ask, well, what does that do for us? Like, who cares 
And you can say that in a faithful way. Like, who cares? What difference does that make? Well, just what we had said. It helps us understand, and it helps us to live meaningfully. And in fact, the longer you dig, you dig into the Trinity, the more profound it becomes. The first place we would want to turn is to go to our scriptures, right? You're like, hey, what, is, what does the Bible have to say about this? Not our only source, but it should be our primary source. What does the Bible have to say? And if I asked you to go find the most Trinitarian passage that you could in the Bible, there would be a couple that would show up. And again, to be fair, Trinity never shows up in the Bible as a concept. Paul never says, now here's the doctrine of the Trinity I'd like you to know. That doesn't happen. But there are places where we glimpse it, right? The baptism of Jesus, for instance. Jesus goes down into the water, the heavens open up, God speaks, and the Holy Spirit's descend. You're like, one, two, three. Okay, I see that. That makes sense to me. Others of you would go to our passage from Matthew today. Matthew says, Jesus' last words are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you're like, you don't have to be a scholar to be like, yeah, I can see the Trinity in those three things that Jesus says. And those are all Trinitarian passages, of course. But if I had to pick a Trinitarian passage, I would pick one of the shortest chunks of Scripture that I know you've already got memorized. I guarantee each and every one of you have this memorized. It's already in your bank, even if you don't know where it comes from. And it comes from 1 John, our most mystical apostle, who said, God is love. That is a Trinitarian statement if I ever heard one. You're like, dude, it's only three words. How can it describe the Trinity? Well, hold on. God is love. Why is that Trinitarian? Well, because, and start cracking it open a little bit, love demands an object. One cannot love if you do not have an object to love. That's how love works. Love always demands two things in relationship to one another. Always. Love always has someone to love. And if you're like, that sounds like something. Yes, cue the Jefferson airplane. You better find somebody to love. Yes, they were right about this. That's how love works. And understand this. There is a huge difference between saying God loves... And God is love. Sit with that for a second. There's a huge difference between saying God loves and God is love. Is it all that special if God just loves? Well, no. I love. You love. But I am not love. Love is not my essence. Love is not who I am. I, and I can't love alone. I can have feelings of love. I can have affection. And I hope that all of us have that. But I am not love personified. I don't embody love as much as I want to love. But if God just loves, well, that can wane, right? If we just say God loves, well, God might love, which means God also might not love. And if we're not careful, we can start to think that God's love comes and goes. It's kind of in and out, kind of depending on the relationship with this other thing. And if we aren't careful, we can start to see that in our text, right? Well, here's a spot where God loves his people, and here's a spot where God simply does not. If we're not careful, we'll start to read the Bible that way. And all of a sudden, God stops being love, and God just loves. And sometimes God loves, and sometimes he doesn't. No, we say something deeper. God is love. 
For God to be love, there has to be something in God's nature that is both giver and receiver. Love demands an object. And that is where our data comes in. That's where our experience and our stories come in. We start to see, well, yeah, God seems to have a relationship with God's self that creates love. We have the data of God the creator. We take that from our Jewish forebears. And they taught us that in a world, in an ancient world, that was flamboyantly pantheistic with gods all over the place, our ancestors said, actually, there's just one God. And we've inherited that. There's only one God is our conviction. We see that in Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, speaking to one, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We inherited that. We're like, there is one God. But then we also have the data of hearing other things that sound an awful lot like God. Jesus comes to earth and says, I and the Father are one. That sounds like two gods. There's something going on there. And then Jesus says, just a couple weeks ago we read this, he says, I will send the paraclete, the advocate or the comforter. And we have the experience of Pentecost where it seems like there's this divine experience that blows in on the people. And what Trinity does, it allows us to say, we have one God, we hold on to this, this inheritance, but also we're able to open up a space where Jesus is is an authentic expression of God and the Holy Spirit is an authentic expression of God as well. Trinity allows us then to proclaim one God and yet proclaim all three, all these persons, these personalities as divine. And in this way, God is personal. Three persons, one God. God is personal. In God's very being is the swirling, active, never-ending, eternal movement of love, always giving and receiving. Father to Son to Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit back to the Father. The Father to Son, it's always this swirling movement of love. God is no longer this sort of static reality sitting on a throne waiting for you and me to screw up. No, God is this energy. God is this reality that is swirling love all the time. God is love. The eternal Father begetting, the eternal Son begotten, not made, pointing us to God, and the Holy Spirit is the bond between them. And then our data says that this community of love that is God chose to be aimed at us. Amongst them, they said, let us make humanity in our image. Amongst the three persons of the Trinity, they said, let us descend in the person of Jesus and reveal ourselves to humanity said, let us send the Holy Spirit, that it might not just be God over there. In fact, it's God in here. God aimed that relationship at you and at me. And we are brought into the swirl of God's nature and reality right now. This doctrine of the Trinity makes possible this mystical way of contemplative living. We don't just seek God. We are a part of the life of God. Because, not because we sought out God, but because God, because God is love, God is seeking us. God is always seeking us. Why? Because God is love. And wherever, and hear me clearly, wherever we see reciprocated love, Freely given and freely received. There we see the Trinity at work. So those who seek to be formed in the way of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are compelled to offer love in community. Because that's what God does. 
not just want to receive love, we actually seek to offer it. We're looking for places to give love away because that is who God is. And this is precisely what St. Paul is doing when at the very end of this letter in 2 Corinthians, he writes these words. He says, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He's creating this community. Why? Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to act like the Trinity does. I want you to be formed like the Trinity does. Strive for restoration. This is what God does. Encourage one another. This is what God does. Be of one mind. This is what the Trinity does. Live in peace. Our God is about peace. To walk in love is to walk in the very essence of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's why Christians have this undeniable evangelistic streak. We are about giving love away, and we can't wait to tell you about it. As we are contemplatively formed into the likeness of God, we cannot help but extend love to invite others into that relationship. This is why Jesus gives the last command. Go into all the world. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. Go out into the world and invite people into this community that is, if nothing else, is based in love. Go do that. Baptize them. Mystically bring others in. Help them understand that their life before love is dead and gone. There is a new life that is happening and it's rooted all of it in love. And walk alongside of them regularly. Don't just turn people loose into the world. He said, walk alongside them, teach them what this love looks like. And as you're teaching, what you find is that you end up learning more about love than you do teaching it. Go into all the world and make disciples. Bring them into a community of love. All of that to say, theology leading to practical work. So when Sabrina and I said, hey, we need to find a way to show love, We went looking for somebody to share some love through this thing that we call Canley Cup. We're not waiting for somebody to love us. We want to go do some loving. And not just the people in our neighborhood, but to have this organization in loving relationships with other organizations. That's what it looks like to be a community rooted in the Trinity that gathers in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is what we do every week here. We wanted to find a way that we, as a church, could share love, affection, camaraderie, purpose. And from my heart, a little competition goes a long way towards helping those goals. And we were so glad to find those relationships, and relationships old and new. Our old, if you'll take it, relationship with the shepherd staff, whom we've loved long before I got here, and you'll love long after I'm gone. And also to develop a new relationship with Shannon and our friends at Hope Rising Resource Center and all the work that she does. And I'm going to let those two talk about the work that they do. But all of this is Trinitarian love. That's all it is. It is the life of God come pouring out in your hands and in your dollars and in your gifts and in this community. In other words, Trinity kind of matters. So friends, don't let theology scare you. Let it drive you to a deeper sense of love. Because we're modeled after the God who is love in and who God is. And God has called us to the same. And that is a life of meaning, a life of purpose. And indeed, it is a beautiful, beautiful life. Amen.